0: Well, if you want to join me in Luke chapter 22, we'll get there in just a few minutes. Luke 22, middle, about middle way through the chapter. Last week we looked at the confrontation of Judas and the temple guards uh, as they came to arrest Jesus, which they did after a kind of a tense showdown in the garden. But then the scene shifts from the garden to the high priest's house. Now, I've had the privilege of traveling over there to the Middle East several times, and it's always fascinating to me how our uh, Catholic friends are so good at finding locations because they've been around as a denomination years, centuries now. Uh, and they will build a church on the site. And as they say in the Middle East, if it isn't here, it's near there. It's close. And there's a church on the Western, southern side, of the, southern side of the city of Jerusalem, called the Church of Saint Peter Galagantu Galakantu. And you're going, what does Galakantu mean? If you want to make something sound cool, find the the Latin word for it and just start calling it that, and it sounds really neat. The word Galakantu means rooster's crow, so it literally is the Church of the Rooster's Crow. So when somebody says, where do you go to church? I go to Rooster's, church, Roosters Crow Baptist Church. Now that sounds like a Baptist church, I'm going to tell you, okay? Somewhere in East Texas. But here on this location, you can see both the Mount of Olives and you can see the Temple Mount, both from that place. And this is where Jesus was taken after he was arrested in the garden. And it's where our next scene takes place, probably one you're fairly familiar with. I'm going to read the passage uh, and then we'll look into the outline. Verse 54 says this, Then they seized him, they seized Jesus, and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, and looking closely at him, said, "Uh, This man was also with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also were one of them, one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Father God, I pray that as we look at this story, Father, one, that it's a fairly familiar one for many of us, that Father, we would see not only the actions of Peter, the actions of Jesus, but Father, we would see ourselves in this story. And, Father, how we struggle at times to not deny you in public and in private places. Father, I pray that as you show us your word today, you would help us to grasp it. But, Father, let it be more than intellectual knowledge. Let it be a heart change that you work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm pretty sure most of us have heard this story at some point in our lives, if you've been around a church at all. But there's also cultural references that pick up this story of denial because denial is one of those things that's a fairly common thing in literature. It's out there, but here what we find is one of Jesus' close friends, a disciple, one of the chosen, one of the 12 nonetheless, denying that he even knows Jesus as Jesus is facing this extreme moment of strife. Peter does something here that I suspect every one of us is tempted at some point to do, to deny we're connected to Jesus. We're tempted to do it, I think, for at least three reasons, but I want you to see this progression through this story because the outcome is what I really want us to end up focusing on is right there at the end of the passage. So first of all, we do this. We deny our connection. Look at verse 54 again. They seize Jesus. We've already said with Jesus' arrest accomplished and he's, he is escorted across the city of Jerusalem. He's taken to the residence of the high priest. Now we think... A residence, this must not have been much of a building. Well, think more like the White House. Does the president live at the White House? He does, with a whole lot more stuff goes on at the White House than just him living there. There's all kinds of offices. There's all kinds of security arrangements. There's all kinds of issues going on there. But here is a large home designed not just as a home, but as a place to conduct the business of the temple. You're going, the business of the temple? Yeah, there's a business of a church that we deal with too. But in their culture, much of everyday life in the region was left to the region's leaders the high priest, the religious leaders. All the Romans really wanted out of the Jews was this. They wanted taxes, they wanted allegiance, and they wanted peace. And after that, they said, y'all do what you want to do, but don't break that up. And as a result of that, the high priest had a lot of influence. The high priest also had to answer to the Roman leaders. But within this multi-story home, the lowest level of that building is a dungeon, and you can actually go to that dungeon today and and climb down through those steps, down to the bottom level. It's the place that Jesus would have been held when he wasn't having a conversation with one of the authorities or wasn't being sent to the Romans for a death sentence. But in this large residential administrative complex comes our friend Peter. Peter's a disciple of Jesus. He wants to go see what's going on. He's curious. Any of y'all curious? I'm always curious. I want to know the answer to things. I get out Google all the time. Y'all found that to be such an amazing tool. You go, what does that word mean? Well, Google it, Google it up, and you can do that. You figure it all out. You can read about the stuff. You can read different stories. But into this place, here comes Peter. I think he was uh, able to get association because of John's relationship with a high peace priest somehow. But his and his honorable his intentions were honorable. He wants to see what's happening to Jesus. He wants to be with him. He wants to be there for him. And it's in the courtyard that he finds himself confronted for the first time. Let's read on in the passage. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, some people say, "Well, that means it was cold outside." Maybe I can tell you this: it was dark. Sometimes you kindle a fire not for heat, right? But for Light, so you can see what's going on. But whatever the reason, they've got a fire. And Peter wants to be near it. He wants to see what's going on. So he sits down among them. And look what happens. A servant girl. You're going, how old a girl was she? Oh, probably 10, 12, maybe, 9 possibly. A girl that worked in the house there taking care of things. She comes up and sees him and looks at him closely and says, these terribly dangerous words. Look at it. This man also was with him. As we might say in modern parlance, the jig is up. His identity is revealed. Here this night, cold or not, this mighty accuser shows up you're going, mighty accuser. I thought I said uh, servant girl. It is. But when you're in a moment in a place that maybe you shouldn't be because of association, when someone identifies you and sees you and points you out, this person becomes what? A mighty accuser. In this moment, she correctly identifies Peter as following Jesus. She had correctly identifies that he's part of the team, part of the inner circle. But notice what, G- what Peter does in this moment. You're going, well, he denied it. Yeah, we we got the denial. But notice what else he does here. He gives the girl a promotion. Did you see that? Huh? He gave her a promotion. Did you see it? This is a servant girl. This is a young girl. And what does he call her? Woman. Wow. All of a sudden, she's a person of adult age and of stature and of authority and of something. Peter is making her to be out way more than she is. He says, woman. Woman. I don't know him. What he does here, I want you to see, because he not only denies his connection with Jesus, he absolutely does this, but he also does something that, listen, many of us do in those moments when we find ourselves in places we maybe shouldn't be and we get called out or the jig is up on us and we will blow up the power, blow up the influence of the person who is speaking to us and make them more powerful than they really are. How often do we do the same thing when we're faced with a choice? Do we proudly proclaim, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. Yes, I listen to his voice. Yes, I'm following his leadership. Or do we deny or deflect or make the person bigger than they are? I'm reminded of three other followers of God who who had to make a decision one day. Are they going to be followers of God or not? This is before Christ came, so they didn't know the name Jesus, but they knew of the one true God. And they were faced with that. You probably remember them from Bible school. Three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember them. Here's what they said. They were accused of being a follower of God and how we're going to do the right thing. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Did you notice what they did to the king? They made him not bigger, but what? Smaller. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if he doesn't, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Catch this. What they did in that moment is what Peter could have done in his moment. They could have said, no, we're followers of God. We don't care the outcome. If the outcome means we lose our lives, so be it. If it means we burn to death in the fire, so be it. If I'm identified by a servant girl as a follower of Jesus, so be it. See, as individuals who graciously accepted Jesus' offer of salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, I pray that we are more like these men than Peter when we're faced with those moments to stand boldly and say, yes, I am here. But Peter didn't. What do you do with it? Notice what happens next. He denies why. This is the why. He denies for preservation. Look at verse 58. A little later, someone else saw him and said, 'Uh, you're also one of them. I find that an interesting translation of the Greek here. You're one of them. You ever been called one of them? She's one of them. Oh, they're one of them Baptists. They're one of them Jesus followers. They're one of those people. You know what? You with me? You're one of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. So Peter was foolishly and cowardly denied his connection with Jesus. But why did he do that? Why do we sometimes? Preservation. A short time later, Peter's faced with this, this dastardly character named man who comes after him with an accusation that he has to deny. He thinks. He seems that Peter has moved away from the fire or maybe somebody else has joined the heat and the light of the fire, but only in this moment they find that the guy sitting there was one of the accused followers. He, this guy, follow, he's one of them. seems he's there. You're one of them. The the original language here, I I, I was curious because every time I study this passage, I always want to come back and learn something new. And I went back and uh, delved into the Greek a little bit, which is not the easiest thing to do for me, but I I work at it. And and the the sense here when he he says it to him, it's like he's saying, You too! In fact, that's all that's in the Greek is one word, you but it has the, the 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 ending on it that gives us the idea of an accusation. So it's you too. You're the one. You're one of those. And it brings a sense of accusation that does this. It puts you back on your heels. Now, do you remember when you were a kid? Now, none of y'all did this, but I did. I confess. I, I, when I was a kid, my, my parents would be in the living room and I would go into the kitchen. Did y'all ever do this? Go into the kitchen and, and find the container that was about this big with a lid on the top of it. You know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh and you'd go to open it as quietly as you could because you knew if they heard you, you'd get in trouble, right? But if you could get away with it, your sister might take the fall, right? Am I, I'm i not the only one that did that, okay, I promise you. But you made the clink, you remember? you go, oh! And your mom would holler from the other room, what? What are you getting into? Right? You too, the same accusation it's that same feeling now what should we have done in that moment yes mother I am trying to get a cookie without you knowing about it even though you said don't get a cookie or actually don't get another cookie right but what do we do no I'm not doing anything at all why is it that our first response is always to deny there's something about us as humans that we do that it's called self-preservation we don't want to meet the board that she's going to whip you with if you admit right you don't want to find yourself on the wrong end of that equation. It's a knee-jerk reaction that we have. I think part of what Peter does here is a knee-jerk reaction. He reacts to the moment. He goes, "You, what are you doing? Who are you? You're one of them?" And Peter goes, "Oh no, no, not me, not me, not me." Put his hands in the cookie jar, right? He's caught. We always want to go in the other direction. We want to run away from admitting that we did this. He's turning for self-preservation. We do the same things. I'm reminded of the words that Paul wrote to the Colossian church many years. He goes this, whatever you do, my friends, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever we do, we're supposed to be doing it unto the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward because we serve the Lord Jesus. There's a thought here that I want you to grasp, and it's this, is that we are not some kind of duality in life. We are not the religious person and the non-religious person, the spiritual and the not-spiritual. We really are one person. And everything we do, everything we say, everything we, everywhere we go, all the actions in our lives reveal a totality of who we are. You say, well, that's good for religious folks like you know, church workers. No, no, listen, we are people, no matter what we do, as children of God, we're to live our lives in a way that honors Him. The God who saves you will not only save you, but He'll preserve you even if you get caught with your hand in the proverbial cookie jar to remain faithful. So we deny our connection. We deny why? For preservation. But how do we do it? We do it by word and act. Look at verse 59, 60 and 61, I believe. Verse 60, Uh, verse 60, and after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Now, we're going to touch that in a second, so hang on to that thought. And Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was speaking, what? The rooster crowed. So, two denials down, one to go. Jesus had foretold this would happen. He said, Peter, uh, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. He had just said that just within 24 hours of this encounter. It seems that Peter maybe got a little comfortable. It's been an interval, it's been an hour, it's been some time. He's there in the courtyard. He's in the in the court in the in the enemy territory, so to speak. He's allowing his guard to get lowered down. And yet in this moment, all of a sudden, another one confronts Peter not with a lie, did you catch that? This is absolutely 100% the what? The truth. He is a follower of Jesus. He is with him and he is a Galilean. He is one of those people, okay? But notice how he identified Peter as a follower of Jesus. He did it with his what? His actions and his words. Wow, we could spend some time there. We're not going to. But Jesus is known for numerous things. But one of the more offensive is to to the religious crowd in Jerusalem was this. He was a Galilean. We don't really catch that, but I think you'll grasp it here in just a second. There's a distinction between those who lived culturally Jewish around Jerusalem and those who didn't. Think of this, the difference between someone from Georgia or Vermont. You're going, I don't know any from Vermont. I'm with you. They're just different. How about this one, from Texas or Oregon? You're going, those aren't the same kind of people. They got different accents even. They speak different words. They use different phrases. A casual conversation, you find there's a difference, often significant. Now, Peter was a a, a fisherman by training, by experience. Let's just put it this way. He was a little rough around the edges. I'm glad for that. His vocabulary would have revealed those differences between him and one of those cultured religious folks in Jerusalem. And so when Peter was confronted by one of the local religious people hanging out at the high priest house, because by the way, who else would have been at that house but the cultural people who want to be there, his words and his actions reveal his identity, his true identity. As we might say, the jig was up. But here's another opportunity for Peter to do what? To stand boldly, to stand proudly with Jesus. Yes, I'm a follower. Yeah, I'm one of them. I'm one of him. I'm his follower. He's my Lord. But instead he does what? He says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Huh. Now he's just completed, we'll call it a denial triplet. He's fulfilled the words of Jesus just mere hours before And if the story stopped right there, it'd be okay. Well, it wouldn't be okay, but it wouldn't be as devastating as it turns out to be for Peter. Because at that exact moment, that rooster starts crowing. Fulfilling the words of Jesus. Doing what the... Paul described the people on Crete many years later as this, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Peter is taking himself down a road that he should not go, just like we take ourselves down that road sometimes. I don't know about you, but being called detestable, disobedient, unfit is not a compliment. In any stretch of the imagination. No, Peter models for us, listen, exactly how not to live our lives when we're faced with a choice. Because it is surely in those moments where we find out where we really stand with the Lord. Yes, mom, I'm getting a cookie. I'm sorry. Is a better answer than, nope, not me. I didn't do it. And if that wasn't bad enough, who's in the courtyard with him? How do I know that? Because he's able to visually see him. Look at the verse. Look at verse 61. And the Lord turned. He probably didn't turn his body. He probably turned his head. And looked, looked at Peter. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Again, if the story stopped right here, it'd be depressing. Peter had foretold, uh, been foretold to deny Jesus three times. Peter denies the Lord three times. He might as well just go eat dirt, right? It's over. We're done. But Jesus, did you see it? The Lord. Don't you just love it when the Lord shows up? When he turns into the moment you're in. And you're going, wait a second, it doesn't turn out well. Oh, it turns out well eventually, just not right here. But Jesus, see, whenever we find ourselves in the darkest of dark moments as followers of Jesus, what we find when we finally look up is this. Jesus was always right there. Waiting. Now, in this case, literally true. Peter was there. Jesus was there. They were both in the courtyard. And in this moment, Jesus turns to look at Peter. And I can't even imagine the feeling that Peter must have experienced. I can't even imagine the emotions that he must have been going through. I can't even imagine the the bitterness that must have set into his soul at this moment, how he was struggling with what he had just done because he knew exactly what he had done. He had denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus looks at him. I had to go do some study on that word. Look, you're going, Patrick. You got way too much time in your life. No, sometimes we got to get into the language to figure out what he's talking about here. You know, well, I know what a look is. Oh, there's more to it than that. Look here, it, it's a look. It's like, well, I told you you were going to mess up. I got to tell you, Jesus. Look, it's not a. I told you so. That's the one we give often, right? I told you so. It wasn't. <laughs> you're awful, you're terrible, you're worthless. Jesus didn't think that or look at that in, in the slightest. Or maybe he looked at it in this way. Well, you talk a big game, but when the things get hard, you fold like a cheap tent. No, that's not the meaning. Here's the word. The word in the original language gives us a clue to what Jesus is doing in this moment. I think it's important we grasp this because it it changes the tenor of the whole song here, if you will. He used a word that carries the idea of looking into someone's life with deep concern and care. It's like a mama or daddy looking at their kid and saying, you don't need a second cookie. You don't need a fifth cookie either. It's not healthy for you, son. They look with love. Jesus didn't judge Peter. He didn't condemn Peter. He loved him. You're thinking, how in the world could Jesus love Peter in the midst of that failure? Because he's who? Because he's Jesus. Jesus. That's the nature of the Savior of the world. See, the most loving thing Jesus could do in this moment was not to necessarily overlook the action, but to look at him and say, I love you and you can do better with my strength. And he confronts the moment why do you think Peter went out crying? I mean, he was ticked at himself. He was upset with himself. He was emotionally erect. But listen, that's exactly what Jesus does for you and me. Did you know that? When we find ourselves in these moments when we are denying Christ, where we're not living the life we're doing, that we've got our hand where in the cookie jar that we shouldn't be in, he says, I still love you. I still love you. Oh, praise his name that he does, right? He loves us. John would say it decades later. The disciple of Jesus said this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but what? That he loved us. (laughs) Oh, how he loves us. Yeah, he loves us. And he sent his son to be, and this is not a word we ever use in common conversation anymore because it's such a weird word and theological word, to be the propitiation for our sins. The closest equivalent, but it would not be fully accurate, is the replacement for our sin. He took our sin. He took it on himself. You see, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Jesus loved us and even when we fail and man this was a whopper right Jesus still loved Peter so friend no matter where you are no matter what you've done no matter how far you've gone away no matter how many cookies you've stolen from the cookie jar (laughs) Jesus still loves you completely and totally and what he's waiting for you with his unconditional love is this to turn to Jesus now Peter it takes a while but he gets there There's a really cool story at the end of one of the Gospels where he ends up at the seashore and he throws himself in the water trying to get to Jesus and Jesus forgives him and he goes on from there to do amazing things. But it started with God's love for him. Unconditional, total, completely love. Just like he is waiting for you and for me to turn to him. So how do you do that? Real quickly, You trust him with your whole heart. You say, Well, how do I do that? You look God in the face. You go, Well, where is God? Well, in prayer, you look God in the face and say, God, I'm a mess. I've sinned. But I want your forgiveness the forgiveness you purchased at the cross for me. And if you'll do that, here's what he'll do he'll give it to you. So then you're done. Then you take the next steps in life. You say, okay, I'm going to follow you faithfully. I'm going to listen to your voice. I'm going to spend time in your word. I'm going to get together with a small group of people and study God's word. I'm going to get in worship and worship God together with others. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to find a ministry. I'm going to find a service. I'm going to do things in the kingdom's work. And you go forward from that. But it all starts with that moment when we say, I trust you. I don't know, maybe you're here today and you need to trust Christ. We want to give you that opportunity. Whether you come and talk with me there in the invitation or want to talk after service, we want you to know Jesus because let me tell you what, the most important decision in life is knowing Jesus and everything else will flow from that. So we're going to pray and then stand and sing and we're going to give you an opportunity to respond. Father God, we come before you thanking you so much for your love, so much for your grace, so much for your forgiveness that you offer freely. And I pray right now for any who might need to make that decision whether it's privately, whether at their seat, or maybe they need to make a public decision. God, we want you to lead us to do the right things. In Jesus' name we pray.